You're listening to sermon audio from River City Church in Fargo, North Dakota. River City Church exists to make disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus through the gospel of Jesus. You can find out more about River City by visiting our website at www.rivercityfargo.org. Father, we make this confession with our song of our just deep and utter dependence on you, that there is nothing that we bring that, that earns us anything with you. It is only by the mercy of Jesus, seen as he pours out his own blood, as his body is broken for us, that we might be washed clean, that we might be renewed, that we might be healed. I pray that the confession of our song would be true of our hearts this morning that we would freshly confess our just, our deep dependence on you. We ask this morning as dependent disciples, as children, that you'd speak to us through your word, by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you might give us all that we need for today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. Uh, Good morning. Uh, you can grab your Bibles and turn to Luke's Gospel, chapter 17. Um, we, every spring, we've been working through chunks of Luke's Gospel, um, kind of January through May. And so uh, we started just a few weeks ago in uh, chapter 16. And today we've gotten all the way to chapter 17. If you need a Bible, some folks are coming around from our strike team and can give you one. You can follow along. Uh, much of it will be on the screen as well. Um, I was working a bit kind of tweaking some things last night and, uh, for today's sermon, and I, I remarked to Amy that today might be like a shorter sermon compared to some of the ones uh, that I've had of late, and then as I got to the end, I'm like, no, nah, just kidding, that's a lie. Um, so, uh, oh well. Um, if, if you've been studying Luke with us, uh, you'll remember that we've been, uh, as we've been working through, Jesus kind of opened 16, and we've read through a, a series of kind of challenging parables. Some things that are just generally hard to understand or the truths underneath them that have been just not hard in a bad way, but just difficult, good wrestles for us to kind of work through and apply. But here in chapter 17, Jesus kind of turns to his disciples, puts down the parables for just a moment, and it's almost like he gathers his disciples to him and says, okay, guys, I'd like to talk to you. Now, there's nothing in the white space between the end of chapter 16, verse 31, and the beginning of chapter 17. But it almost seems like Jesus is is answering a question or speaking to a concern that the disciples are raising or that might be kind of under the surface for them. After the parable of the rich man and Lazarus that we talked about last week, there's a, a sobering reality that has settled on Jesus' disciples. The reality of eternal joy for those who know Christ and the reality of eternal judgment for those who reject him. So you can understand if Jesus' listeners here might be a little concerned, it might be feeling a little bit of weight, because life is hard, temptation to sin is all around. How might we escape the challenges of this life unscathed, right? And that question isn't in the text, but I think it would be helpful for us to have Jesus' parable in mind, 
as we, or his parables in mind that we've gone through as we, as we think about and, and read our text today, coming right on the heels of it. So let's just do that. Let's read our text, Luke 17, verses 1 through 10. We'll read that today. Hear the word of the Lord this morning, Luke 17, starting in verse 1. And he, this is Jesus, and he said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Verse 5. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Verse 7. Will any, of you, will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he's come in from the field, come at once and recline at the table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he, think the, does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, Say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done that, excuse me, we have only done what was our duty. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Now, I don't know if you heard it, but Jesus kind of gives an answer right away in verse 1 to that, that unasked question that I referenced. Verse 1, he says to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come. There's a sense of inevitability here in Jesus' words. The curse of sin has fractured the cosmos. And I think it's fairly self-evident that we see the effects of that. From the bombing of a church in the Democratic Republic of Congo that happened this last week, to the exploitation of children that we read about in the news, to just the day-to-day brokenness we see as we scroll through our own feeds, right? All the way down to the sinful motivations and desires that show up in our own hearts that sometimes catch us by surprise. Jesus is making a simple and soberingly true statement. Temptations to sin are sure to come. So the question is, what do we do? (laughs) If this is reality, or to ask it this way, we, we know what a world marked by sin looks like. How are we then to live as followers of Jesus? We, we know what the marks of sin are. What are the marks of a disciple? That, I think, is what Jesus is kind of getting at here. So he turns to his disciples and says, Okay, guys, listen. You've seen how the Pharisees operate. You've seen how the political class operates. You've seen how the world works in all of its brokenness because of sin. This now is how you're to live as my disciples. So that's where I want to go today. What are the marks of a disciple of Jesus? That's the question. And the answer from our text, the disciple of Jesus is being conformed, that's being shaped, transformed, being conformed to the image of Christ and by faith follows in his steps. The disciple of Jesus is being conformed to look more like Jesus and the disciple of Jesus is following in the the steps of Jesus. 
Now, I think there are some really practical things we'll get to here in this text. I see five things in this text that are kind of marks of a disciple. So it's a five-point sermon. So there you go. Just telling you ahead of time. The disciple of Jesus rebukes, repents, forgives, lives by faith, and boasts in grace. Let me say that again. The disciple of Jesus rebukes, repents, forgives, lives by faith, and boasts in grace. Now, before we get into these marks, the text is set up for us with just a couple of verses, verses 1 and 2, which are helpful. Jesus says this, temptations are sure to come. Temptations to sin are sure to come, right? That inevitability. But woe, Jesus says, a woe is, a, is more than a caution and more like a curse. Cursed is the one through whom they come. So temptation seems inevitable, but a strong woe to the one who does the tempting. Right? And then Jesus gives this warning. To the one who tempts another to sin, it would be better for that person, the one who's enticing others to sin, it would be better for them that a giant stone was tied around their neck and they were thrown into the ocean. Now a millstone, it was a giant stone wheel or a set of wheels, if you, if you will, Often it was kind of two large stone wheels with a, with a cone at the top, and the grain from the local fields would be dropped into that cone, and it would fall between the stones, and the stones would, would grind together. And in grinding the, the, the grain, it would sift out the, the chaff, the waste, and then the flour. So this is what you'd make on the backside. You'd, anything that was left, the shell or the stuff that wasn't taken away, uh, earlier by winnowing would be ground down into flour. And these big stone wheels were often turned by pack animals, usually donkeys or something like that, which would pull these big stone wheels and they would turn and grind the grain. A small town might have like a town mill where all the farmers would take their turns bringing their grain to the millstones to be ground into flour. So the picture here is for the one who tempts another person to sin, it would be better for them that one of these big giant stones would be strapped to their neck and they'd be tossed in the water. Now, we don't have millstones around here. I mean, we're agriculture country, but still, 21st century, right? But I've watched this building going up or being remodeled over here, this bank building. Sometimes I've just sat out there when the big giant cranes are lifting huge pieces of steel from the ground to the roof, and I'm like, I hope there's a place for that because that is a large chunk of steel. So a modern picture for me, a picture like this, is better that a giant hunk of steel would be strapped to you and you'd be just laid in the Red River with the steel on top of you, which probably isn't that deep, but you get the drift, right? That's the picture. It'd be better for you to be buried under the water than to cause someone to sin. The question is, better than what? I don't know if you, when you read a text like this, if you're like, better, better than what? It would be better that they were dead by drowning than to face the judgment that is due them because they have tempted another to sin. That's the comparison Jesus is making here to kind of set the stage. What they're facing in terms of judgment for leading others astray is worse than drowning via millstone around your neck. That's the, that's the parable. Essentially, Jesus, or the, the parallel, Jesus is saying this. Many of the religious leaders who have created all these systems of man-made righteousness, anyone who boasts of their own righteousness by their own works, 
They are leading others astray, and they are in danger of this kind of judgment. Jesus says, so pay attention to yourselves. Be careful. Don't go down that path. You do not want to go there. The Apostle Paul tells young Pastor Timothy something very similar. He says this in 1 Timothy chapter 4. He says, keep a close, close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Another translation says, watch your life and your doctrine closely. As an aside, this is an immediate caution for any of us who would aspire to be a teacher of the scriptures in any form, and specifically those who might serve as pastors or elders. There's a reason that James writes in James 3, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, not because you're not good teachers, not because you're not gifted, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. There's a caution here. Woe to you who lead others into sin. This is what Jesus is starting with. Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon wrote this, the worst sort of clever men are those who know the no better than the Bible. That's what Jesus is saying here to, to his disciples as he calls them to him and says, hey guys, watch yourselves. <laughs> Which leads us to our first point. And these first three kind of all go together. It could have been a three-point three sermon where I grouped these together, but I said, no, let's just go for five. Five is better. First, the disciple of Jesus rebukes. Jesus is kind of setting this up to say, Woe to those who tempt others to sin. But you disciples, your responsibility is to deal honestly with sin and you need to address it. And so Jesus draws this contrast. Don't tempt others to sin. Rather, a disciple of Jesus rebukes sin. Rebuke just means to, to call it out. It's correction. And I think it's fascinating that some 2,000 years ago when Jesus said this to his disciples to encourage them to be honest with themselves about their own shortcomings and sins, to be humble and willing to address, to confront a brother or sister in Christ who's in sin, that this challenge to them 2,000 years ago is just as pressing for you and I today. And I think we're often slow to rebuke other people. When, when, I, when I put this forward, when I say the disciple of Jesus is called to rebuke sin, we, we coil, recoil a little. And there's a couple reasons for that. I think sometimes we are slow to rebuke sin. We're slow to rebuke because we don't want to offend. I mean, part of that, we, we recognize that maybe this is a sensitive topic. Maybe we don't have all the details, right? And so we, we hold back. Sometimes we're slow to rebuke because I think we have an over-realized sense of individualism and its autonomy. Like, I wouldn't make that choice, but hey, man, you do you, right? I think it's an over-realized sense of individualism. Three, sometimes I think we're slow to rebuke because if we're honest, we're actually really keenly aware of our own sin shortcoming, those little dark recesses of our hearts that we would like to keep hid, hidden. And we know for sure we wouldn't want those exposed, so who are we to try to expose those in other people, right? But, but Jesus is saying, this isn't how it's supposed to be. This is not what I've called you to. Now remember, a couple things. Jesus is talking to his disciples, so by extension, he's talking to Christians, and he's saying, Christians, this is how you deal with brothers and sisters. This is how you deal with other Christians. So as Christians, we're not allowed to minimize sin in our lives or minimize sin in the lives of our brothers and sisters. As R.C. Sproul says, sin, all sin is cosmic treason. 
It's cosmic treason against God. And we know the effects of it. We see those effects all the time. We can point them out. So if we're talking about sin, and I'm I'm not talking about secondary matters. I'm not talking about areas where we might differ in personal conviction that aren't clear, moral, biblical instructions. But if we're talking about sin, then we need to be willing to risk offending a brother or sister when it comes to matters of sin because we are more concerned for their souls. We talk about this as elders, like we are, we, as, a, as a plurality of elders, we share the responsibility here at River City to, to lead together. Not one of us has more authority or, or shielding than, it, like, to use the like, common political language, like none of us is above the law, if I could say it that way. It is to our benefit that we speak honestly and candidly with each other because we care about one another's souls. This is brothers and sisters together. Proverbs 27, verses 5 and 6 say this. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. There is a wounding that comes from a friend that, yes, it wounds, but it is intended for the good of the person being wounded. I'm going to use an illustration. It kind of worked for a service, so we're going to go with it here, second service. Sometimes you see it in zombie movies. Right? I know a couple people are like, where are you going? Right? Character gets bit in the arm as they're like trying to run into a safe place. Gets bit in the arm by some, you know, brain-hungry zombie. And what happens? Immediately, someone from the group pulls out his machete and says, here, bite down, this is going to hurt. And then like chops off the arm of the person to like keep the virus from spreading. Maybe you're like, I don't watch zombie movies, and that's why, right? <laughs> but I think we tend to look at rebuke like that, right? This is wrong, so let's cut it off. You'll thank me later, probably. And so perhaps we shy away from rebuke and the idea of rebuke because we see it as it's too gruesome. It's, it's like a zombie movie, unnecessary. But, but Jesus commands, I think, proper rebuke. So I think what he's saying here is when it comes to rebuke, it's less like just cutting off an arm and probably looks more like the work of a careful surgeon. It's probably more like this, at least I hope so, that the scan of your life says, we see a cancerous tumor. And so we're going to go in with a scalpel and carve that out. Now we might have to take some good flesh with us when we do it, There might need to be some reconstruction that happens afterwards. We might have to sever some nerves. You might have to retrain how you do a certain thing because we have to go in after that cancer, but we're going to go in and we're going to get it out for your good. Jesus says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. If they are your sister or brother in Christ, then you're not standing against each other. You're standing together in Christ and you're standing against the sin that was destroy you if not cut out. That's, I think, what Jesus is getting at here when he says, disciples, you rebuke one another. The disciple of Jesus doesn't tempt others to sin and is instead courageous to confront sin when it is present. That's the first mark we see here in this passage. The second is this, the disciple of Jesus repents. Look at what Jesus says at the end of verse 3. If your brother sins, rebuke him. 
and if he repents, forgive him. Now, there's a lot we can say about repentance, and this passage really only just references it. But, but I want to highlight just a few things that I think would be helpful for us in these four words, and if he repents. Repentance isn't only feeling remorse. Repentance isn't only feeling sorry for something. The word repentance means a change, to change one's opinion, to change one's mind about an issue. It's a turning from something. Not just acknowledging it, but a turning from it. It's kind of built into this word repentance. So repentance is, at least to some degree, observable. Parents in the room, perhaps you've seen this with your own kids, right? You confront your child, your son or daughter, for an attitude or an action or behavior of some kind, and you can tell. You can tell. It's a parental superpower. You can tell if the, what's coming out of them is genuine, that they really truly feel bad for what's transpired, or if they're like, fine, I'll apologize, sorry. Right? Maybe you're like, actually, Jake, that's not, I'm not a parent, but you just described me, right? You can tell the difference. Repentance is something that bears observable fruit over time. And notice Jesus says, look, remember, temptations are sure to come. Repentance, then, is often present. And sometimes, even if that temptation overcomes someone multiple times, Jesus says you just keep repenting and keep forgiving. Now, we believe as Christians that our identity, who we are, is changed in an instant by God's grace upon repentance. And we believe that we are being changed, the word sanctification, we are being changed slowly over time as our desires change and our perspective changes, as our old self is slowly being put to death and we put on the new self, who we already are in Christ. So Jesus is saying repentance might need to happen often, maybe even seven times in one day, we read. Martin Luther wrote in his first of the 95 Theses, which sparked the Protestant Reformation, he said this, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. It happens, and it keeps happening. It's both and. The disciple of Jesus repents. Don't minimize sin, deal with it, which ties into the third mark of a disciple. It's all in that one verse. Remember, these three go together. Rebuke, repent, forgive. This one's a little tougher for us. I read a post from a pastor a number of months ago. Uh, It's kind of stuck with me. He said this, forgiveness walks through the door that repentance opens. It's not scripture, but really, really helpful. Really helpful. Because I think there are two significant misunderstandings about forgiveness. We hear it both from the culture and I think we wrestle with it inside the church. Uh, On one hand, there's this idea and a misunderstanding that repentance means, or excuse me, forgiveness means that we minimize the sin and its effects. We're saying it's okay. That's misrepresentation. That's not what forgiveness is. It is not minimizing sin and its effects. On the flip side, I think there's a faulty view of understanding of forgiveness that kind of runs in Christian circles. That Christians are just called to throw around the word forgiveness 
to anyone for anything at any time without any understanding of what it actually is that people are being forgiven for. We use the phrase unconditional. But forgiveness, biblically, is not unconditional. Let me explain. Forgiveness doesn't just excuse sins. Forgiveness comes on the backside of repentance. Always. We just read that when we're sinned against, we're called to rebuke, to call sin, sin. Here's the difference. That we are called to be ready and willing to forgive. If repentance is present, then forgiveness is not optional for the Christian. That's what Jesus is saying. We must extend forgiveness. And what's more, if they do it again, if he sins against you seven times in the day, verse 4, but their repentance is real. And Jesus says the charge for you is to forgive again. The number seven is not saying like only seven and if you sin an eighth time, it's over. It's this picture of continue, continuing, right? If repentance is real, then forgiveness is always available. Now, please hear me. I'm not talking about forgiving in a way that minimizes sin or devalues that forgiveness, what it actually is. But because sin is significant, repentance must be real. And if repentance is real, then grace abounds. And so we must stand ready to forgive. It doesn't mean the relationship is the same. It doesn't mean the sin and hurt is overlooked. It doesn't mean that there aren't consequences or that sometimes restitution doesn't have to be made in some cases. It, does, it, it doesn't mean that we just pre, like, pretend everything's okay and then just offer back to that other person 100% trust again. No, no, that takes time. It doesn't mean there aren't healthy boundaries that are established. But here's what it does mean. Biblical forgiveness means that whatever the offending sin was, when repentance is truly present, then I no longer hold it against you. So I think we need a robust biblical understanding of both repentance and forgiveness because it's hard for us. What is and what isn't repentance? What is and what isn't forgiveness? Now, there's a lot more that can can be said about that that we don't have time to do today. So as a shameless plug, I'm going to put some resources that I found helpful on these two theological issues, repentance and forgiveness, in our weekly update. By the way, I always put some, usually, not always, usually put some like bonus reading and different resources there. So shameless plug, you should sign up for the weekly update. You get updates on stuff happening at the church and also links to helpful articles. There you go, plug over. The question is, or the, the, the idea is here with forgiveness that we are willing to forgive. And not because we've reached some mature place of self-awareness. Not because we've moved on and we're just, it's no big deal. Not because we make light of or minimize the reality of sin. We are willing to forgive time and time again because God himself has offered us forgiveness in Christ Jesus. And though we mess up not just seven times, but 7,000 times, the hope for us is that if our hearts are truly broken and repentant over our sin, he forgives us and receives us. So those are the first three marks of the disciple of Jesus. The disciple rebukes, the disciple repents, the disciple forgives. Now the fourth mark of a disciple of Jesus. The disciple of Jesus lives by faith. Look at verse 5. The apostles say to Jesus, increase our 
faith. It's almost like the disciples heard all that Jesus was saying about rebuke and repentance and forgiveness, and they went, uh, Lord, uh, we're going to need some help with that. That's hard. And Jesus kind of says, you're right. It is hard. It's pretty near impossible, actually. You're going to need a massive amount of faith to forgive someone, except it's not really all that massive. You only actually need, Jesus says, this tiny little mustard seed amount of faith. Mustard seed was one of the smallest agricultural seeds they would have known at the time that they would have used regularly. Very tiny, tiny, tiny seed. You only need this much. And if you had even this much faith, Jesus says, you'd, take, you'd say to this mulberry tree, I don't know if anyone is familiar with mulberry trees, but they have uh, usually a pretty extensive root system and are notoriously hard to dig up. You just say to this mulberry tree, get up, go plant yourself in the ocean, and it would do it. Now, I don't think Jesus is rebuking his disciples here. He's not saying, you guys don't have any faith. He's not saying that. He's saying, you're right. <laughs> you do need faith to live this way as a disciple, to walk in repentance, to extend this kind of ridiculous to the world standards kind of forgiveness. You cannot do all that on your own in the flesh at least not honestly and not consistently. You need something. But it's not about the size of your faith or the quantity of your faith. It's just the reality of it, specifically the object of it in action. See, Jesus is setting the stage for them to be completely dependent on God. On your own, these things that we're called to as disciples are, are impossible. But trusting God, you can actually do these things. You can walk in this way. He is doing these things in you. Remember now, for time after time, as we look back through this gospel account in Luke, Jesus is reminding them of the kingdom. He's saying, do, do you see it? it? I'm the king. This is my kingdom. The way I do things is different from the way the world does things. Do you, do you see it? Everything now is different. The math works out differently. The way you interact now is, is different, and it all centers on me, Jesus says. So one of the marks of a disciple is that he or she is dependent on God, and that dependence on God, that faith, is observable, and it is seen putting into practice what Jesus has already said. A deepening faith in Jesus, that he is Savior and not just Savior of our sins, but Lord and King in our lives, is on display in the life of a disciple who is mindful of their sin, who treats it honestly, who is able to rebuke sin, address sin in others with humility and boldness, who's repentant when his own sin is exposed, and is willing to extend forgiveness when repentance and reconciliation are sought. That is faith in action. The fourth mark of a disciple here, living by faith. And here's the fifth one, and the last one. The disciple of Jesus boasts in grace. This last little section, verses 7 through 10, is interesting to say the least. It's not as much a parable as much as it is an illustration. There's a master and a servant, and they've been working hard all day. 
And when the day is over, will, you, will the master say to the servant, you've done enough, come on in, put your feet up. Jesus says, probably not. The servant would be expected to complete his duties. He'd go inside and wash up and prepare a meal and serve that meal. And then after his responsibilities were done, then he would sit and eat. Likewise, Jesus says, when you have done all that you were commanded, when you've lived as a disciple should live, your response to your master should be, well, we've only done what was our duty. Now, this might seem like an odd, an odd uh, little illustration. Maybe you've read this before and you're like, I don't understand that next. Maybe you wrestled over it. I don't know. Let me see if I can help make it a little more simple. One, Jesus is not promoting slave labor. Two, Jesus is not suggesting masters shouldn't be kind and generous to their employees. This illustration would be understood by the people who were listening. It's likely a poor farmer who has maybe one servant. So they're out in the field tending to the sheep or tending to the crops together, side by side, sweating it out in the sun. And when the day is over, they go inside and the master washes up, the servant washes up, and then to fulfill his obligation, that's his job, he makes a meal. The lesson here is that the servant is not owed anything special just for doing his job. Now, there's lots of places all throughout the Gospels where Jesus talks about the beauty of servanthood. This illustration is not dealing with that. Jesus is saying this, that when you've done all that you've been called to do as a disciple, your response at the end is, we're unprofitable servants. We've just done that which was our duty to do. Meaning, our obedience to God adds nothing to the master so that he would owe us something. To put it in money terms, our faithfulness doesn't add to the kingdom's eternal bank account. So when we are full of faith, when we act on that faith, when we walk in humility to rebuke sin, when we walk in repentance, when we extend forgiveness to others, we're not gaining more favor from God. We aren't earning points with God that we can cash in to Him later. We're just doing what God's given us to do. I mean, think about it. He made us in His image. He called us out of darkness and into His marvelous light. He has made us complete in Christ Jesus, sees us complete in Christ Jesus, and by His Spirit is making us complete in Christ Jesus here. He has called us His own disciples. He's instructed us in the way of His kingdom. Explain to me our part in that. Right? So, when we walk in the identity that we have now as disciples of Jesus, we're not adding, adding anything new to the vaults of the riches of the kingdom of God. We're just doing what disciples do because this is what citizens of the kingdom do. Jesus is pushing on this, this false idea that says, what we do earns me something with God. It doesn't. It doesn't. There is nothing that you or I can do to earn anything in the kingdom. The math doesn't work that way anymore. In this case, you and I can't stand before God and say, but I didn't lead anyone astray today. I was very good at rebuking those people who were in error on Facebook. I was quick to forgive today. You see how humble my heart was, Lord? Therefore, count me good. Jesus is saying, whoa, 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 whoa. You, you can't do that. That's not how the kingdom of God operates. 
If you're a citizen of the kingdom, if you're one of my disciples, you don't get points for that. That's just what citizens of the kingdom do. Ephesians 2 this, outlines this really well. In some ways, as I was reading this week, it's almost like Paul writing this little section in Ephesians 2 is almost a commentary on this little section from Luke 17. Paul writes this, For by grace, you've heard this before, you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Right? Paul continues, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Do you see it? We are called to walk in the things that God has called us to walk in because everything we have has been given to us by grace as a gift and not a result of works. We earn not one ounce of it. That's the big idea in this little illustration that Jesus gives his disciples. There is no boasting in this. This hard thing I've told you to to do, this, this way of living which is just contrary to the way the world operates, you don't boast in that even. Our obedience to live as faithful disciples doesn't obligate God to us in any way. And that's what's beautiful about grace, that he is absolutely not obligated to love us. There is no arm twisting with God like, I did the right thing, now you love me. The fact that he is not obligated to love us and loves us is what makes it absolutely amazing. Right? All the way back in Luke chapter 12. We're not there yet. We read it last year. Not that we're not there yet. We already read it. Go back and read it. Luke chapter 12, there's a picture where Jesus is the bridegroom coming to have a big old party. And he's talking about the the end of the age and what's going to happen. And and he's saying, I'm the bridegroom. I'm going to come. There's going to be a great feast, the wedding feast of the Lamb. It's going to be awesome. Listen to what Jesus says in Luke chapter 12, verse 37. He says, blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Right? So here's a master-servant relationship again. Listen to this. Truly I say to you, he, the master, Jesus, will dress himself for service and have his servants recline at the table. He will come and serve them. Jesus is not obligated to serve us. He doesn't owe us. He willingly offers to serve us out of his abundant grace. So the disciple of Jesus, if they boast in anything, they boast in God's grace. So one of the big takeaways for us as, from this passage is to just kill the idea that if we did more of the right things, our lives might be better or easier or more blessed. Can we just kill that idea? Now, I do think that God sometimes in his mercy to get our attention when we're not listening to him opens our eyes sometimes by difficult circumstances and the consequences of our own sins. Right? Well, 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 if it isn't the consequences of my own actions... Right? And I think sometimes that's God's mercy to to draw us back to Him as well. Please don't hear me diminishing that. But let's not ever even entertain the idea that we can be more obedient as a way to leverage God into being more generous with us than He already is. Because God is far more generous and gracious to us than we are prepared to be grateful to Him. So, This entire little section that we've looked at, these verses, it kind of has two parts. 
right? It has these imperatives, these instructions, these commands, right? And it's things that we're, we can wrestle with and we should wrestle with. As we read this passage, we go home, we're uh, in prayer this week or we're reading in our Bibles this week and we're studying and we're wrestling through, are these marks of a disciple visible in my life? That's an okay question for us to ask, right? Where am I flirting with falsehood or sin in my own life? Am I aware of the influence that I have on other people? And am I leading them toward God and toward his word? Or am I leading them someplace else? That's a good question to ask. Do I speak with humble confidence to correct and rebuke my brother or sister when sin is present because I care about their soul to a greater degree than I care about if they're going to like me afterwards? Am I quick to receive rebuke when a brother or sister is doing their God-ordained discipleship responsibility to rebuke me in my sin? Do I receive it? Do I humble myself? And do I chase down those who, I'm, who I've sinned against that I might be reconciled to them? Am I ready and willing to forgive when repentance is on display because of how much I've been forgiven in Christ? And when these things are not on display in my life, can I be honest that at the heart of it is probably unbelief. My faith is placed somewhere else. I think we do need to wrestle with these things. It's okay for us to wrestle with these things if we claim to be disciples of Jesus. And, as I said a couple weeks ago, these imperatives, these commands, these instructions don't stand alone. They're not naked. No naked imperatives in the gospel. What I mean by that is there are some things that are true which pin down those realities. We can't for one second misunderstand obedience Jesus does not want us to follow the path of the Pharisees of the day who were just essentially practicing a form of moral virtue signaling. Look how good I am. I'm good. And because I'm good, God should bless me. Jesus isn't saying that. He's, what he's saying instead is it's actually true that you and I bring nothing to the table when it comes to salvation, when it comes to righteousness. God brings everything. Well, Theologian Jonathan Edwards actually says this. He goes, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. Which is a great kidney shot that I'm like, yes, please, Lord, may I have another. Right? Like, it's a good reminder. Like, what do I actually bring to the table when it comes to salvation? Well, the need to be saved. That's what I bring. And we're going to sing these lyrics in just a, in a few minutes uh, after communion uh, from a, a great hymn. Uh, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. The disciple of Jesus boasts not in our own obedience, not that we're right on a particular issue or doctrine. Our boast is in God's grace. R.C. Sproul in his uh, commentary on this passage said this, and I thought it was so good. I was like, maybe I can paraphrase that. I'm like, no, I'm just going to read his version. It's better. Here's how R.C. Sproul says it. All that has been done to get me into the kingdom of God is done by Christ. He, and he alone, is the profitable servant. We reap the benefits of his profit. He takes the profit that he has achieved and pours it into my hands. Now, when I stand before God, I have everything. I have the whole world. I have perfect righteousness, righteousness in my hand, but it is his, it is not mine. The reality is, it's mine because I'm in him, and it's his. Friends, if we 
are disciples of Jesus and we want to walk closely with him, let's remember that God is at work in us by his Holy Spirit to conform us to the image of Christ and to empower us to live as the disciples that he's called us to be. So the charge for us is to follow in his steps, to walk in all the things that God has prepared for us to walk in, and in this way we begin to look and smell and act and be like him. We begin to bear the marks of a disciple of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are patient with us. I confess, I am so slow and often stubborn, and yet you are merciful to remind me, to remind us that we, that we bring nothing and we earn nothing by our obedience. And yet, so we boast in grace. It is a gift. Repentance is a gift. And so we walk receiving that gift of repentance by faith. And as we walk, you, you're gracious to renew us and to change us. Father, I pray that as we come to the communion table, we, we see with fresh eyes the, the weight and the beauty of the bread and the cup, what was purchased, what was won, what you profited in giving of yourself, Lord Jesus, that you now give to us freely and without cost. We lay down our lives. We surrender afresh that we might be wrapped up into your grace and your mercy. Would you cause our hearts to be sensitive to the leading of your Holy Spirit, that if there's places where repentance is needed, that we would not push against that, that we'd respond with humility and repentance, that if there's reconciliation that needs to happen so much as it depends on us, that we would pursue those brothers or sisters where reconciliation is needed, and that we would together as brothers and sisters in Christ walk in the light and receive afresh your grace and mercy. Pray all this in Jesus' name.